remember, we started a series called What's Next. And really last week we were talking about what's next for us as a church as a whole. And so we talked about where we were at as a church, reviewed some of the things God had done over the last year, and really over the history of our church. And then you got an annual report. If you didn't get one of those, hopefully you can grab one of those on your way out today. Just go out to one of the kiosks out in the lobby, and uh, we'll have those for you. And we talked about then what's next for us. And we said what's next is going to require faith, because without faith it's impossible to please God. And we talked about how we were a lot like the Israelites, about to take a huge faith step, that what we do next will then reveal the faith we already have, and then what we do next will leave and determine our legacy, how we impact the next generation, whether we walk by faith in these days that are ahead for us. Today we're going to talk about something that's more individual for each one of us. Not just what's next for us corporately, but what's next for each one of us individually. And so I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll jump into the scriptures today in John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, we give them away right over by that white basket. You don't have to feel compelled to leave anything here. They're our free gift to you, so you can go ahead and grab one if you'd like. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to jump into your word today, to gather together as a church family, to celebrate you and what you've done in our lives, and to think about what you want to do next. I pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts today. I pray that you would remove sin that would hinder us from hearing from you. I pray that you would speak in such a way that it's crystal clear in our minds and our hearts what it is that you have for each one of us next. Whether we've been Christians for a long time or whether we're brand new believers, whether today's the day that we place our faith in you, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through your word and through my lips somehow supernaturally do that, please. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Like I said, last week we talked about what was next for us corporately. Today we talk about what's next for us individually. We said last week we had 36 people last year place their faith in Jesus Christ that we know of that were recorded here at the church. Maybe you were one of those 36 people. That's awesome. You should celebrate that. But what's next? Some of you are getting baptized today. What's next after that? Some of you need to get baptized today. Maybe that is what's next. Some of you, maybe it's uh, you've been sitting on the sideline at church. You just kind of attend and you come and you consume. You're a consumer at church and it's time for you to get in the game. It's time for you to get involved. Maybe that's what's next for you. What's next for you? Maybe you've been a Christian for a short time. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you've been a Christian for 40 years. What's next? For some of you, maybe you went on one of the short-term mission trips last year. Maybe the next step for you is long-term moving to a place. For some of you, maybe it's a financial sacrifice. Maybe it's putting yourself out there relationally in a way you've never done before. What's next? And whatever it is, I know it's going to require what we're going to talk about today. We talked about last week, faith, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. But today we're going to talk about a topic that many people don't like to talk about. We're going to talk about humility. It's one of the things that we hope is true in our lives. We'd rather ignore. We certainly don't want to pray for because we might fall on our face, right? You don't want to pray humility and something bad's going to happen. It's humble you. But it's something that's required of each one of us. James in James chapter 4 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That means this, if you're lacking humility and you want to walk into what's next that God has for you, you're actually fighting against God. It's not possible. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The prophet Micah says in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So today we're going to talk about how God requires humility. If we're going to walk in what's next for us, each one of us, wherever we're at in our faith journey, it's going to require humility. And humility leads us to four different things. And we're going to talk about that today, what those four things are. We're going to be in John chapter 13, if you have your Bible. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in John chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 in just a moment. But let me tell you what's happening here. The disciples, the 12 closest followers of Jesus and Jesus, are at a transition point in their ministry. They're about to step into what's next. What's happened so far is that Jesus has had his public ministry. He's called these 12 men to come follow him. He's taught in the synagogues. That's over with. 
He's fed the 5,000. That's over with. He's taught to large crowds. He's done with his public ministry. No more raising Lazarus from the dead. A bunch of people coming around. No more people wanting to be fed. No more of any of that stuff. Now it's just him and chapter 13 through 17 are the hours that lead up to Jesus' death. This is a private ministry now with his 12 closest followers. He's preparing them for what's next. And what he gives them to start this off is an incredible and never, you would never be able to forget this picture of humility. Look at it with me. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. So he knew this was happening. He was aware, even in his earthly ministry. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus is aware of this too. So Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, he was returning to God. And so he's, he's got his identity nailed down. He knows where he is. He knows he's got power over all things. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. And verse 4, So, because of that, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. He's dictating to Jesus. He's right in realizing that Jesus is superior to him, that Jesus is his master, all those types of things he's wrong in. You don't tell Jesus what to do. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Let's go all the way. Jesus answered, a person who's had a bath only needs to wash his feet. His, only, his body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. Here we see he knows about Judas, Judas, who he also watches his feet. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. And then we get what happens after this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is, his nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Not if you think them, not if you memorize them, not if you're familiar with the story of them, but if you do them. And what we have here is an incredibly shocking story. Now many of us, we know this story. We've heard this before, and, and so we don't think of this as shocking. But just think about headlines. What are some of the most shocking headlines that have ever happened throughout history? JFK is shot. Man walks on the moon. The Titanic sinks. Just think about some of the headlines that, are, that have happened throughout history. We're not shocked by those things right now, but think about what it was like at that moment. The president gets shot. The unsinkable boat sinks. A man walks on the moon. That would have been impossible. They would have thought that was impossible at that time. How about this past week? We celebrated a, an anniversary. It's bad, celebra I mean, it's bad that it happened, but September 11th. Terrorist attacks on American soil? Think about the headlines were the day after that, seeing the planes fly into those towers. It's not shocking to us today, but it sure was shocking then. Think about the headlines could have read this day. It, see, it's not that some guys got their feet washed in, in John chapter 13 that's the big deal. Do you know what the big deal is? It's that God is the one washing the feet. See, foot washing was reserved for the lowest of the low of slaves. What could the headlines read? God becomes a slave. 
God gets dirty. Think about what the headlines could be. The very God who created that dust that was on their feet is now wiping it off. The one who created those feet. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the creator of the universe is now stooped down and he's serving the creation. That's a shocking headline. And what it is is the picture of humility. It's the ultimate picture of humility. It says the full extent of his love is being shown here. It's actually a picture, a glimpse at the cross that's going to come. Within hours of doing this task, Jesus will be hanging above the earth by a couple feet on a cross, dying for your sins and for my sins. It's preparation for humility. He's in these last hours, and he gives them a picture of humility. And he shows us that humility leads to several different places through this passage. The first one is this, that humility leads to service. Your humility in your life will lead to a life of service. And so we're going to look at these places where humility leads us. And then what we can do is on the back end of this message is look back and go, are these things true in my life? Then I know that I have humility. Because the problem is, for many of us, we talk about humility and no one knows if they are. And you think, if I think that I am, that I must not be. We've been given so many bad pictures of humility. So before we talk about what humility is, let me tell you what humility is not. Humility is not low self-esteem. Some people think that's what humility is. It's, it's really insecure people that are actually humble. Or it's people that, uh, you know, I'm a worm, I'm dirt. They kind of talk themselves down. The self-deprecating stuff that they say all the time. That must, those are the really humble people. That is not humility. In fact, that's actually a form of pride. Those people are showing they think a lot about themselves. I don't believe that Jesus is struggling, struggling with low self-esteem here. Remember, he left heaven where they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come continually, 24 hours a day. He left that. He comes here. It says in verse 3, he knows that all, he has power over all things. He knows where he comes from. He knows where he's going to. Fully secure in his identity. That's why he's able to serve like this. It's not an issue of low self-esteem. Another version of humility sometimes we get is that somebody gets uh, praised maybe for a gift or an accomplishment, um, some skills that they have, some, you know, whatever it is. And they say, no, 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 <laughs> Jesus, scored a touchdown, it's Jesus. And really, they could be going like this, oh no, yeah, look, keep looking at me, look at what Jesus has done in my life. That's false humility too. See, what real humility is, it's almost like a supernatural ability to not think about yourself at all. And to think about the needs of those around you, which then leads to a life of service. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 2, when he says not to do anything. Do nothing out of selfish ambition for your own personal gain or vain conceit to puff up your own ego or your reputation. But in humility, not thinking about yourselves, consider others better than yourselves. See the need in their lives. Each of you should look not only to your own interest. Of course, you're going to feed yourself and care for yourself. It's not some unawareness of your own needs, but also to the interest of others looking for ways to minister into their needs. And that's the very thing that we see Jesus doing in this passage of Scripture. Think about what it says. It says that his time has come, and for your own study, you can go through the book of John, and we know this is a transition point in the book of John, because up until this point, Jesus repeatedly said statements like this, my time has not yet come. His mom wants him to turn water into wine. It's not my time. It's not, time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. It's not come for the time for me to die. And time has not yet come. And then here we get to chapter 13, and it says Jesus, he knows that his time has come. Which is also interesting that he knew his time had come. What does it mean that his time has come? It means it's time for him to die. And he knows that within hours of this situation, he's going to die. He knew that. Can you think about what if you knew that you only had a certain amount of time to live? What if you knew you had hours, that in 15 hours from now, what if you knew you'd be diagnosed with a disease and you'd die within 6 to 12 hours after that? How would you live? 
I had a friend who was told this week, you get two days to two weeks to live. What if that happened to you? What if you knew it was even shorter? What if you knew it was a, uh, a couple hours? What would you do? I doubt you'd waste time. I don't think most of us would go turn our favorite TV show on. You know, we'd just kind of do nothing. We'd do something. We'd do something that we thought mattered. And so here's Jesus. He knows he only has a few hours left. He also knows the guys he's spending time with, that he's going to focus these last hours on, it's going to be crucial whether they get this stuff. Because 11 of these 12 guys are then going to be responsible for the movement known as the church. One of these guys is going to preach a message. He's going to start the church. 11 of these guys are all going to start ministries. They're all going to be, it's going to be, they're going to be responsible for what ends up happening in the lives and the eternities of millions and millions of people. And so what does Jesus do? What would you do if you were Jesus? He doesn't teach them to preach. Isn't that interesting? They're all going to have to preach. He doesn't teach any of them how to preach. He doesn't give them a seminar in leadership. Five keys to effective leadership. Three steps. This is how to. How to be. He doesn't do any of that. Doesn't show them how to start a ministry. They're all going to have to do that. But instead, he teaches them how to serve. In this moment, what Jesus does, where he only has so many hours left, and he's aware of, he knew his time had come. He serves. Try and imagine the scene. There's 13 guys in a room. Uh, they've come to this place to eat this meal. Everyone would have bathed. They've done probably a ceremonial bath with perfumes and oils and all that stuff to get there. But then they would have walked. And so they would have gone on streets, unlike the ones you and I drove on to get here to church today. They wouldn't have been paved. They would have been in dirt roads. Some of those dirt roads, there would have been dust that would have been inches thick. If it had rained, it had been muddy. They show up in this room. The cultural custom would be there would have been a slave there, a servant there, to wash the feet of these men as they came in. But this is a secret meeting. There's no slave there. There's no servant there. And so culture would dictate, then the lowest of them should have been the one that washed their feet, but they didn't. Instead, they're all at the meal. They're eating the meal. Now, they would be sitting at a table. It wouldn't be like you and I will do when we go to lunch today. We sit in a chair, and there'll be a table. They'd been leaning on their left arm, laying down at this low-lying table that are U-shaped, kind of next to each other all the way around it, and their feet would have been extended out behind them. As I try to put myself in this story and try to imagine what it was like, I wondered to myself, what it would have been like to be some of these guys. And whether they ever looked at their own feet and thought, hey, at a meal like this, we're, we're supposed to get our feet washed. My feet are dirty. And so are his, and so are his. And maybe I should wash their feet. And, and I wonder what, how they rationalized and justified in their mind not to do this. And, and it got me thinking. I remember uh, when my wife and I had four kids. I remember when we first had kids and started to get into the whole changing diaper thing. I had never changed a diaper before. And I learned how to change diapers through experience. Not a fun experience, but did. I have a bad gag reflex. We won't get into too many gory details. Uh, but it didn't go well at the beginning. After a little while, the time we had our fourth child, changing a diaper is no big deal. I don't even think anything up. Whatever. I got it. But let me tell you, let me be candid with you. Don't judge. Uh, what ended up happening is that every once in a while, one of my kids would come by, and it would be a different level, okay? Be, not going to be too graphic here, but I'm talking the ripe, okay? This is bad news. And I would do this look. Anybody else notice? Shan around here somewhere? <laughs> Did anyone notice that I noticed? Do I? And don't judge me. You've done it if you're a parent. Huh? I wonder if any of the disciples, they looked at the feet and they were like, oh, maybe I should do it. Oh, but Peter's feet. Like, I don't know if you've thought about Peter's feet, but he's a fisherman. I doubt that guy probably got pedicures, Okay. Probably wasn't wearing a toe ring or using the pet egg and lotioning those babies up at the end of the night. He might have looked over and been like, those feet are raunchy. Like, I'm not doing those feet. 
I do my feet. I probably do Philip's feet. Bartholomew sounds like a nice guy. I do that. I'm not doing those feet. And somehow in their minds, they decided they wouldn't be the one. And so then I thought to myself, well, who should have done it? Of the disciples, it should have been the least of the disciples. Which one of them should have done it? So we know some of their names, right? Peter, James, John. Maybe it should have been Peter. I mean, I know he's really well known and everything, but he does a lot of dumb stuff. Maybe he's the least. Or maybe it's one of the guys. Can you name all 12 of the disciples? Do you know there's guys, we can't even remember some of their names. It's got to be one of those guys then, right? Like they're the least popular ones. Maybe it's them. Like Bartholomew. Did you even know there was a guy named Bartholomew and the 12 followers of Jesus? Maybe it's him. Or maybe, did you know this? There are two guys named Judas. Wouldn't it stink to be the other Judas? For your whole life. Hi, I'm Judas. I'm one of Jesus' felt. Not that, no, not him. They'd be almost like, hi, my name's Osama bin Laden. Not, not that one. No one names their kid Judas. So who should have done it? Here's what I know for sure. Culturally speaking, not that he did anything wrong, the one person who clearly shouldn't have done it was Jesus. So can you imagine being one of those 12 guys? You're sitting there at this table. You're contemplating what's supposed to happen. Oh, and Luke tells us a detail John doesn't tell us. Luke chapter 22, you can read on your own. It says that they're arguing about who's the greatest. And then to... Feel your foot get wet. And to look down and see that it's Jesus. He's the one washing the feet. It says in verse 4, how he starts to do it. It says, so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. That's significant because we know that Jesus wore a priestly robe. That would be a sign of dignity. It would be a sign of respect. That was oftentimes probably when he went into the synagogues, how they knew that he was a rabbi, that he was a teacher, and they gave him an opportunity to teach in the synagogues. Remember, they didn't have CNN and Fox News and local news to see faces of all these people. So Jesus comes in, he's wearing the robe. That's a sign of respect and dignity. Would you like to teach? It's significant. He takes that off like he's laying it aside. And he wraps a towel around his waist. So now he's just wearing his undergarments and a towel. That would be the garb of a servant, a slave. And then after that, he pours water into a basin. He begins to wash his disciples' feet. And what we see here... There's a picture of Jesus' life of service. This isn't just an act of service. Jesus lives a life of service. And so in this moment, when he only has so many hours left with his followers of Jesus, they're going to take this movement around the world. He chooses to teach them this. He gives them a picture of his humility, but humility leads to service. It's like he tells them in Luke chapter 22, we see that when they're arguing about who's the greatest, he tells them, listen, when we're going to see who's the greatest, there's a new way to measure this. You want to be a leader? Then you're not like the leaders in the world who think the more people they get to serve them, the better they are. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 26, he ends up saying to them, but you're not to be like that after giving them bad example. He says, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest or the least and the one who rules like the one who serves. And he asks these questions. Who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Well, obviously the one at the table, right? He says, is it not the one who's at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? And aren't I the greatest? I'm Lord, and I'm serving. He says in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, for the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Ultimate picture, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That he would die on the cross for your sins, for my sins. He would serve each one of us. He lived a life of service. He came, his mission was to live a life of service. And so the question for us is, do you live a life of service? When you think about your life, do you live a life of service? So I'm not asking you, do you have a position of service? Do you have some role of service? 
But when you think about your life the whole, the, as, a, as a whole, now have you ever served one time? You know, not, did you do Southbridge Serves last year? We've got it coming up in October. My goal and then right now in this message is not to get you to sign up for Southbridge Serves in October, to do one thing. But to think about your life as a whole. When you die, will they put on your tombstone, he served, she served? Do you live a life of service? I shared an awesome stat with you last week about our church. 234 people in our church serve on a team, and that's awesome. I think for every one of those people and every minute that they've given to serve this local church. But um, the head scratcher for me is, and after I preach that message on Sunday, I get you know reports of things that happen on Sunday morning and life change, and one of the things I get is attendance. We had over 750 people attend our church last Sunday. And so 200 of them-ish were uh, kids, about. So say there are 550 adults. That means not even half of them are on a team somewhere, not just on that Sunday morning, but somewhere in our church serving at some point in time on some kind of regular basis, maybe once a month. Well, some people will say to themselves, well, I serve in other ways. I don't serve in my church. Well, look at the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14 says this, so if you want spiritual gifts, you're eager to have these gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. Ephesians chapter 4 tells the pastors and the evangelists and the prophets and the teachers, their role is not to do the ministry of the church, it's to equip the body so that they can do a ministry to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. If this is where you attend on a regular basis, this is your body of Christ, this is your local church. Why don't you serve here? I know I'm talking to at least half of you. You should serve in some place, in some way. And some of us, we don't. For whatever reason, I tell you, I'm just going to tell you one a personal one that bothers me a lot. I remember when we first planted our church, the church and we were getting started, we just really needed people to serve in Bridge Kids at the time. And uh, I'm not trying to get you to sign up for Bridge Kids right at this moment, by the way, either. But I just, this is one that sticks out. It's really irritating to me, honestly. Um, and we had some people, we asked them, will you serve? And they said, no, I've done that. I, I'm past that stage of life. I know, I've been in there, been there before. Now, at the same time, just so you know, I know that there's an, uh, a woman in her 80s who's now bedridden, is not able to attend Southbridge regularly, but a member of our church um, who's holding babies in the other room. When do you outgrow serving at certain levels? Let me tell you when. When you don't obey passages like Philippians chapter 2 that I read to you earlier. You should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. No, 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 I'm, I'm beyond that. I'm past, I don't do that. I'll let somebody else take care of all those things for me. But consider others better than yourselves. And it goes on. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, to be grasped, but emptied himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The lowest form of death for the worst kind of criminals. And now here we see him in this passage doing the lowest form of service. So here's the deal. Even if you are on a team... And you serve in some way, tech team, worship team, bridge kids, you pick up trash in the parking lot on the parking lot team, get the sign set up, whatever it is you do. And you don't get scheduled every week. Do you have a mindset, though, that when you come, I'm looking for burdens. Does somebody look like they're carrying a heavy heart today? That's service. Is there something that where you can look? You get out of your car and you see trash in the parking lot. Do you pick it up and put it in your car so that guests don't see it, so they feel more welcome, they're not distracted by those things? Or is it now somebody else gets that? It's a mentality. It's a life of service, not just a position, not just a role. And humility leads to service. Humility not only leads to service, humility leads to sacrifice. We see that in the next part of this passage. 
go here in the next part of the passage, and we see that Peter gets in an argument with Jesus, which is not a good idea, by the way. Not even Judas says, don't wash my feet, but Peter does, okay? So Peter here says this, and uh, we end up learning something, though, that this is about more than just foot washing. This is actually about more than just these guys being served. It's about more than just their feet getting clean. It's about sacrifice. It says in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you, and he's real emphatic in the pronouns, going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. There's more to it than what you see here. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet. And so Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. A lot of times washing in the New Testament is a a spiritual metaphor for being cleansed, being forgiven of your sins. And then uh, Peter says, Simon replied, Simon Peter says, unless you wash my feet, uh, or um, wash my feet and my hands and my head, wash everything. That Jesus explains to him, which would be a picture of that they'd already taken a bath. Their whole body was clean. Their feet were the only things that were dirty. It's kind of like saying, um, you've already come to my sacrifice. You've already experienced forgiveness of your sins. You've trusted Jesus to be your Savior. But what happens in the life of a believer is we still sin. I hope that's not a newsflash for anyone. And so that's why you get verses like 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins. He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll cleanse you of your unrighteousness. We still get things that hinder our relationship with God. And so deal with those things. It'd be like washing your feet. You're clean. You're in. You have a part with me. But you still need your feet cleaned. Jesus says a person who's had a bath only needs to have his feet washed. So body's clean. And he says to Peter to assure him, you are clean. And he probably looks around the room and says, but not every one of you. And then verse 11 says, for he knew, Jesus knew this too, and he still washes his feet. He knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not everyone was clean. And so we know that this is about more than just foot washing, because he's not talking about just physical clean. He looks around the room, he knows who's, not gonna, who's gonna betray him. He still washes that guy's feet. He's not looking over at Judas going, and Stankfoot over there, like I'm not gonna wash his feet. He's talking about spiritual here. He's talking about his sacrifice. There's one of you who hasn't come and experienced my sacrifice that I'm going to give on the cross, who hasn't experienced my forgiveness, doesn't realize who I am, and it's Judas. And we know that from the fruit of his life, too. He says it clearly here that he's not clean. We get verses that say it's better had he never been born. But we see what happens. He sells Jesus out for some money. He's thinking about himself. It's the opposite of humility. It's what can I get out of this? What's in this following Jesus thing for me? And when he realizes it's not going the way that he wants it to go, he gets what he can get. He hasn't come to the sacrifice. And see, those who serve are oftentimes the ones who sacrifice. And Jesus is pointing them here to his sacrifice, ultimately not just to get their feet cleaned, but his dying on the cross for their sins, for my sins, for your sins, for all of our sins. And it's a sacrifice. It's a picture of humility. Become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2. John chapter 13, the ultimate picture of humility. And some of you know my story. Um, You know how I came to Christ as a senior in high school. The guy who shared Jesus with me and I, we started to meet together. I remember asking him as a brand new Christian, you know, how do you study the Bible? And how do you pray? And tell me what it's like for you. And some of you are newer Christians. And that's what you need to do. You need to go to someone else who you know has been a Christian longer than you. It doesn't have to be like 50 years, but just longer than you. And just ask them, tell me about how, what it is when you read the Bible by yourself. How do you do that? What is your prayer life like? And some of you maybe have been Christians for a little while. You've never done that someone else. Just go to someone else you think does that stuff and ask them. And that's because that be a mentor to you. And you don't have to have one mentor. You can have multiple mentors. Like lots of people that speak into your life. I remember sitting in this kitchen table of this guy who I was asking those questions to. 
And the topic of humility came up, and he told me a story that, that has just stuck with me ever since. And years ago, I think I probably shared this with you, but I remember him telling me the story that he, read, he got it from a Chuck Swindoll book on service. And he was telling uh, about this little boy named Chad. And he said, Chad was a, a great little kid, but not very popular with his classmates. And his mom would watch him every day come home from school about 3.30. She'd look out the window. She'd see the same scene. There'd be about 10, 12 kids walking home, goofing around with each other, laughing, playing, what kids do. And Chad would walk behind him about 10 or 15 feet on his own, almost like he was being shunned by the kids. He wasn't. He just wasn't connected, really, with the kids. And then the the story goes that this 8-year-old boy, Chad, comes home from school one day after the new year, tells his mom, Mom, this year, Valentine's Day is coming up, and I want to do something special. I want to hand make a Valentine's Day card for every one of my classmates. Now, the mom did everything she could to try and dissuade him from doing this, try and stop him from making these cards and spending all this time on this because she knew that the year before he was basically forgotten by his classmates. didn't get hardly any cards in return. So she didn't want his, and you can imagine as a parent, she didn't want his little heart to get broken. So she says to him, you know, we'll buy cards, we'll do all these things. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He's so focused on, on making these cards. And so, after the new year, he begins to make these cards, handmade, each one, personalized for each one of his classmates. Finally, Valentine's Day comes, he goes off to school, and you can imagine what it was like to be mom. Knowing that your little kid's going to come home heartbroken. Hoping that maybe today will be different. And so she makes chocolate chip cookies, which are his favorite, to try and comfort him when he gets home. She puts a glass of milk on the table at 3.30. She goes to the window, she looks out, she sees the same scene. Kids goofing around, laughing, playing with each other, carrying their bags of Valentine's Day cards. And about 10 feet back is Chad, walking back to the front door with a determined step. And she goes up, she opens the door for him, he just walks right by. He says, not one, Mom, not one single one. Can you imagine how you'd feel as a parent? And he repeats it. Not one, not one single one. And she's got her heart welling up in her throat. She gets down on her knees and she's trying to embrace her son. And he turns around with a smile on his face and says, I didn't forget one. I didn't forget one single classmate. See, that's humility. It's not thinking lowly of yourself. It's not bad self-esteem. It's not thinking about yourself at all. And it's oftentimes those who serve are the ones who sacrifice. That's what happens with Jesus. Let me make an observation here for you. Go through this passage of scripture. There are 13 men in the upper room. 12 men get their feet washed. Guess who doesn't get his feet washed? It's Jesus. I don't see anywhere in this passage where it says that someone then said, I got you, Jesus. I got that. I get this. It's Jesus. Guess who's the one that's going to go to the cross? It's Jesus. See, humility leads to sacrifice. Do you live a life of sacrifice? What's your life about you? Well, see, God's going to call you to what's next. It's going to require humility. It's going to mean sacrifice. Maybe it means sacrificing your reputation for Jesus. Maybe it means sacrificing financially in some way for Jesus. Maybe it means sacrificing something else for Jesus. But it will lead to sacrifice. And many of us will be like, oh, I don't want to sacrifice, I don't want to do these things. It's because we lack humility. Because humility, we get over ourselves. It's like the supernatural ability to not even think about yourself, but then think about those that you're trying to impact for the kingdom. Because that's what it's all about. Humility leads to service. Humility leads to sacrifice. Not only that, but humility leads to submission. Look at the next part of this passage. It says, when this is all done, Jesus gets up. Verse 12. 
when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on. Now that's significant, isn't it? He puts the robe of respect and dignity back on. He returned to his place. And he says, so what were we talking about, guys? Who's the greatest? Is that what it was? He doesn't say that. He's not trying to shame them. He just says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, and so graciously, he doesn't give them time to answer. You call me teacher and Lord. So he points to two of his titles. You call me teacher. I am your instructor. I'm an authority in your life, a place of honor in your life. And I'm your Lord, which is far superior than a teacher. I'm your master. I own you. You call me teacher. You call me Lord. And notice Jesus doesn't say, cut it out. I'm just one of you. Let's kind of goof around together. He doesn't say, oh, it's just God's grace. He says, no, and rightly so. We're different. I'm a superior. You're an inferior. Verse 14, now that I, your Lord, the master, the owner of you, and teacher, the one you look to for instruction that directs your life, have washed your feet, have done the lowest task possible. Of a, the, not only just a servant, but the lowest of the low servants. You see, if you were a Jewish slave owner, you could not command a Jewish slave to do this task. It was reserved only for Gentiles. In fact, if you go through all any kind of ancient source we have, Roman sources, Jewish sources, there's not one instance of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. Not once. This is shocking news. He says, I've washed your feet, and I am teacher, and I am Lord. And so you should wash one another's feet. You don't have any reason not to do this, and you have every reason to do this. I've set you an example that you should do, and notice he doesn't say what I've done for you. He's not saying literally you have to go wash people's feet. He says, as I've done for you. You might underline that word in your Bible. Not what I've done for you, but as I've done for you. And so what's being said here in this passage is not, hey, when you go to Bricks today for lunch and you see some guy at the table next to you, go over, pull his socks off. Because that would be weird in our culture. But he, he's saying, as I've done for you, I notice a need. I'm not thinking about myself. There's nothing that I'm above doing. And I'm the Lord. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And Southbridge, we're the sent ones. 19 months in Acts. I hope you got that. Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. Just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. John chapter 20, verse 21. We are the sent ones. And he's the one who sends us. And we're not greater than him. So if there's anything that would be, we would be asked to do, give an opportunity to do, and we think, well, I don't do that. I'm too good for that. You know what we're saying? We're saying we're better than Jesus. So let me ask you this question. It's rhetorical. Please don't respond back to me. I don't need you. I'm going to ask the question. I don't need you to come tell me the answer, but you need to answer this question. Is there anything that God would ask you to do that you'd say no to? Think about it. It's a serious question. Because if you answer yes, I wouldn't do that, then you're saying that you're above Jesus. That you're better than him. He's our Lord. He's our teacher. He's our master. And he does the lowest of the low. He becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. A cross? Like we miss that culturally too. That's for the worst kind of criminal. He dies that kind of death. He washes feet. That's for the lowest kind of slave. It's the ultimate picture of humility. He's submissive to the father. And then he's our master. And we're to be submissive to him. You call me teacher. You call me Lord. And rightfully so. There should be submission here. Where does the submission come from? Another observation of this passage. He doesn't tell them to wash feet. 
until after they've had their feet washed. You're not supposed to see service and sacrifice and submission. They all come from love. That's the motivator. That's the fuel to give us to be able to run this race. It's not until you've experienced the love of God that you're then expected to demonstrate the love of God. Go back up to verse one. He demonstrates the full extent of his love. That means unlimited love. That's the kind of love you don't experience for most relationships on earth. Not even human like marriage relationships. You know, married people, a lot of times they'll say things like, you know, I'll love you as long as you always do these things, whatever the thing is for have a job, you know, don't get fat, like always clean the car, like whatever the thing we have things. We don't like to say those out loud, but we have things, don't we? That's not perfect love. That's imperfect love. That is not God's kind of love. Or don't do these things. Like don't cheat on me or don't whatever. Fill in the blanks. And we have those. We know we have those. People will, sometimes people will say them. That's limited love. The full extent of his love is unlimited kind of love. That's what he's demonstrating in this passage. And then it's not until after they've experienced that kind of love, then he expects them to demonstrate that kind of love. And you see that throughout the Bible. You get passages of scripture, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8. It's that missionary passage. If you ever hear missionaries get called into service, and Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Basically, wherever you want me to go, anything, anytime, anywhere, I will do it. It's a great passage of scripture. But sometimes we miss the context. What's happened just before that is Isaiah had an encounter with the living God and says that I am a sinful man. Woe to me, I'm a sinful man. I live before sinful people. I, basically, I should be dead right now. And then God graciously sends an angel, puts a coal on his lips, and says, your sins have been forgiven by my grace. It's not until after that experience that then he says, here I am, send me. After he's experienced that kind of love, Peter in the boat with Jesus, Luke chapter 5, you can read these on your own. Luke chapter 5, what ends up happening is that Peter falls down and he says, you're the Lord, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. It's not until after he sees the miraculous catch, until after he has an encounter with the living God, realizes who Jesus really is. You see this all through the Bible. Paul's got that passage we oftentimes talk about in Galatians chapter 2. Where he talks about, for me to live as Christ, or no, uh, from, I'm crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We oftentimes don't read the last part of the verse. That's the fuel, that's the motivator, that's why. But Christ lives in me, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not until after he knew the story of the gospel. He knew Jesus died, he knew his believers claimed that he raised from the dead. It wasn't until after he experienced that love and realized he was the chief of sinners. I've been washed clean. But then he was willing to die for Christ. Submission. And the motivator for that is love. And the same for our sacrifice and the same for our service. Have you experienced that kind of love? If you say you're a follower of Jesus, then you say you have. But we know there are people that haven't. Think about Judas. Had there been anyone closer to the teachings of Jesus? Had there been anyone who could quote what Jesus said, what the Bible said, He's given great responsibility. We know he stole money from the treasury, so he was overseeing that. Had a platform of ministry, and he didn't know Jesus. He tells him here, submission, sacrifice, it's service. But he tells us the last one here in verse 17, that humility also leads to satisfaction. Humility ultimately leads to the thing that many of us are trying to pursue. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, satisfaction, joy. It says here in verse 17, now that you know these things, you'll be, and it's makarios is the Greek term, could be translated happiness. It is in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Happy are those who, happy are those who are, blessed are those who, blessed are those who. Happiness, gladness, joyfulness, blessedness, satisfaction. 
God's favor on those who are stirred emotionally, inspired, think they ought. Doesn't say any of that stuff. Blessed are those, satisfied are those who do them. Joy, satisfaction in the scriptures is tied to obedience. Submission, sacrifice, service. But it's people who actually act on it. It's not just those who see the word of God. It's those who do the word of God. And so what does God want you to do today? This isn't the kind of message you can leave and be like, oh, I, was, I remember that. I thought about this observation in that story or whatever things we can walk away with and we can just know information. You have to do something as a result of this. So what does God want you to do? And this is where it becomes incredibly individual because it's going to be different for each person here. What does God want you to do? Is it a time for you to step on a new act of service? If you want to serve and you want to figure out where to serve, we've got a blue tent set up out in the lobby today. Our executive pastor, John Cullen, is going to be out there. He'd love for you not just to get signed up on some team, but we'd love to find out what's your gifting. Where, where can you be best, most effectively used for the body of Christ? To build up the body, to impact more and more people for Jesus and go to the blue tent. At least half of you should be considering that. Maybe it's to take a step of obedience. Some of you might need to be baptized. Like I said at the beginning of the service, turn left when you go out the hallway, you get baptized today. Why not today? What's stopping you? Some of you need other steps of obedience that I couldn't guess. But God knows. Some of you, it's a new level of sacrifice. And I don't know what area, but God knows. He's speaking to your heart. What do you need to do as a result of what he's speaking to you? Not just know, not be warmed and filled, but do. Maybe it's a new area of submission and obedience. It's time to finally deal with that sin that you keep going back to. Maybe it's time to take a next step of faith. Do something. Because it's those people who do God's word that experience the satisfaction that only comes from Christ and being in, it's like the warmth and the embrace of the love of Christ as you walk. And it might mean you get your head cut off in your sacrifice, but you're totally satisfied in who Jesus is because you know who you are, you know where you come from, you know where you're going, and now you're on a mission to serve, to sacrifice, to submit. And that's where your satisfaction is found. And if those things are true, then that's a life of humility. Let's pray. Father, I pray that each one of us would be humble, that we would serve, that we would sacrifice in whatever ways you call us to. And I pray you would speak individually and personally to us about those things. I pray that we'd be submissive to you, that you are our teacher, that you are our Lord. And I pray that you would have, through your word, taught us today. And I pray that you would have shown us areas that you want control over that we might not have given you yet. And God, I pray we'd be delighted in you that we would delight ourselves in you and then you'd give us the desires of our our hearts and that our hearts would desire the things that you desire for us and that we would, like we were praying earlier, we would pray not our will but your will be done. God, that your will and our will would become one, that we'd be united in desiring what you want, whatever that is, and that we'd walk in that truth. We wouldn't just be glad we went to church today or be warmed and filled, but that we would do something as a result of what we know about you and what we know about what you desire for us. Please make us doers of the word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.